You are listening to a sermon from Mission Point St. John. We hope this message encourages a deeper connection between you and Jesus, our Savior. messages Brother Becker didn't preach to us it was just powerful to let go just let go we've been talking about chains breaking here tonight let go our pastor preached this morning just come home just come home hallelujah let's lift our hands and love the Lord together hallelujah 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 Jesus Chains are broken in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. There is nothing you cannot do. There's a great revival in our world tonight. I talked to pastors, Mission Field, and in contact with a lot of them on a monthly basis. They are seeing outstanding, outstanding miracles, healing, people being filled with the Holy Ghost, being baptized in the beautiful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about, as we believe it. We believe it. We believe it. Chains are broken. Past is forgotten. Buried under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forever, forever, not to be remembered. We don't have to worry about it. It's gone. When we're buried in Jesus' name, those things are gone, forever gone, washed under the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, praise singers. Beautiful. Let's give them a hand. I'll tell you what, they do a tremendous job, don't they? They do a tremendous job. God bless you. You may be seated. Amen. Just want to quickly... Uh, talk a little bit about our missions program. And if you was here in the business meeting last year, this church did about 285,000. I believe it's in that vicinity at least. Isn't that wonderful? $285,000 from our church that went to foreign missions, home missions, Bible school, all some of our daughter works, whatever was necessary. So it's a wonderful thing that, uh, that we can give. And I just encourage you to keep doing it. We're headed into a summertime, I think. I don't know. I thought it was summer, but I got up the other day and there was snow on the ground, so it's not summer yet. But it's coming. And when summer comes, it's vacation time, a lot of things happening. And so I just encourage you. You're just doing such a fantastic job every month. And I just say thank you, thank you on behalf of missionaries around our world. Amen. The Bible says that all flesh, all flesh needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Holy Ghost is outpoured upon all flesh. Amen. It doesn't matter the culture. It doesn't matter the nationality or where you're from or your background. It is the same God that we serve. Hallelujah. And he's desiring to... 
do a marvelous work in lives around our world, and he is. And we just thank the Lord for our missionaries that are laboring. $16,069 were given last month during the month of March. So let's thank the Lord for that. That's a beautiful, beautiful report that we have. $16,069. Amen. I'm so thankful to see what God's doing around the world, what he's doing right here in St. John and beyond. Uh, Pastor and Sister Carter, they are currently in Newfoundland traveling with the Bible school. Uh, so they will be back this coming week. Uh, so you get me to speak to you tonight. Uh, last year, when Evan and I were ministering at the youth weekend in Newfoundland, I decided while we were there that I was going to tell a story because it was the first night of the youth weekend. And if you've ever been to an event, you know that the first night can be a little bit tense sometimes. Um, and so I was trying to break the ice a bit and tell a story. The only thing was that it was an embarrassing story. And so as I was telling it, I looked to the back of the room, and I see this elderly lady with a shocked look on her face. And if I were to guess, I would say that it was probably because I was talking about bodily fluids from the pulpit. And in that moment, as I was telling the story, I realized, oh, man, I really am embarrassing myself, aren't I? And the story that I was telling was about when I was in the first grade and I had peed myself. And... The ironic thing was that my whole message was all about, uh, you know, being humble and not being full of pride. And in that very moment, I was feeling my pride very hurt. Well, since I told the story to strangers in Newfoundland, obviously I have to tell my family, right? So, spoiler alert, bodily fluids are involved, but I will keep it very minimal. So... I have lots of embarrassing moments that have happened in my life, but you know whenever someone asks you, what's the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you? This was one of those stories that <laughs> it was like almost always my answer for a really long time, especially as a kid. And we were, I was in first grade. My teacher had brought us to the library and I loved reading and going to the library, I still do. And so, that day, we were at the library. I was there looking at all the books on the shelf, but the problem on that day was that I really had to go to the bathroom. So I'm standing there with my legs crossed, looking at the books on the shelf, debating with myself whether or not I was gonna go ask my teacher to go to the bathroom or just hold, wait it out. Well, the thing was, grade one, I was a very shy kid, so I was still really scared to go talk to my teacher, but I also really liked reading, so I was scared that if I went, then they would be gone by the time I got back. Well, I'm sure you know how the story ends. Eventually, there was a puddle on the library floor. And I remember that embarrassing feeling of sitting in the office at the school waiting for my mom to come bring me a change of clothes. And for the next two years, this bully called me pee girl for two years. I finally had to move to a new town. No, just kidding. My parents moved, and they brought me with them. So... I still remember that embarrassing feeling. And as my grandmother would say, I had hurt my pride. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about pride. In the first few chapters of Daniel, we see the story of a king who struggled with pride and self-glory. King Nebuchadnezzar is an extreme example in scripture of what lurks in everyone's heart. 
in chapter 4, we read that King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream. And he calls all the interpreters from the kingdom to come and give him the interpretation for his dream. But no one was able to. And this is what he says in verse 5. He says, I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. Now, I'm sure most of you have had the experience of having a dream that wakes you up in the middle of the night and is almost, you know, too serious that it kind of shakes you a little bit because it just seems so real. Or maybe it was really, really bizarre and you're like, man, that had to be a warning or something because there's no way I thought that up on my own. Or maybe you told a friend or your husband this crazy dream you had and then as you're saying it out loud, you realize just how ridiculous it sounds. Well, Imagine the type of dream that someone would have to have to go to the lengths of getting every person in the entire kingdom to come and try to tell them what kind of dream they had. He called all the magicians, astrologers, fortune tellers in the whole area to try and tell him what this dream was. That's a pretty dramatic dream when you think about it. And as we read, none of these people are able to give him the interpretation. But he is determined. He needs to know what this dream means. And so finally, he finds Daniel, the one who's able to interpret the dream. And verse 8 says, But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Balthazar, according to the name of my God. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And before him, I told the dream. So Daniel was finally able to give him the interpretation of the dream. He's finally able to tell him what the meaning is. But he makes it very clear from the start. He says, I'm going to give you the interpretation but it's not by my wisdom that I'm giving it to you. It's by the wisdom of the God that's with me. And in verses 20 to 26, we read the description and the interpretation. So we hear all about this very dramatic dream. What was the dream and then what it means. Now, I'm reading six verses here. Those of you who zone out, please try to pay attention to the screen. I remember my parents used to always ask us after... Uh, service what the message was about and we'd have to like give you know a couple things to prove that we were listening and my siblings they hated it when I went first because I would just keep naming off things in the sermon and they're like there's nothing left to say we promised we were listening well Evan I'm going to be quizzing you later <laughs> you better be listening all right all of you make sure you're listening to what's on the screen it's only six verses we can make it through uh, description of the dream and the interpretation. So this is the description. The tree that you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump. Okay, so there we have what happened in the dream. Now let's look at the interpretation starting in verse 25, and this is Daniel talking to the king. He says, 
this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until, note that word, until, you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. So with this interpretation, Daniel urges the king to get rid of his pride and acknowledge that his kingdom has only prospered because of the hand of the Lord. And here we see a really great example of how God handles pride. As declared throughout his word, destruction will come as a result of a proud heart. The king was going to be brought low, and his position would be destroyed until he acknowledged that God was the one who really deserved the glory. You see, but God, he didn't have a desire to leave him in that place of destruction. He left room for restoration, the stump. He left room for that change of attitude that would happen. And if the king got rid of his pride, then God would restore the kingdom to him. This pr battle with pride, it wasn't something that had started in the king overnight. We see the struggle right from the start when Daniel and his three friends, who we later know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're brought to Babylon. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he instructs them that they have to learn the culture and learn how to be Babylonian, basically. And the king was so proud of his culture and his kingdom that he was forcing others to adopt it. After three years of learning this culture, Daniel is then brought in to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. And during this dream, he's given the interpretation that earthly kingdoms will all be overtaken by the kingdom that lasts forever, the kingdom of God. Now, in that moment, when he's given this interpretation, the king actually starts to worship God and worships him for this interpretation. But later on, we see that pride sneak back into his heart. And he becomes so proud of the kingdom that he built in Babylon that he makes this massive golden image that people are forced to bow to. Now, for those of you who might not be familiar with the story, if they chose not to bow, then he ordered them to be thrown into a furnace fire. It was almost as if he was trying to just battle against the interpretation that Daniel had given him. He didn't want to accept that there was another kingdom that was greater than his. So after about a year, a year after Daniel had given the interpretation to the second dream, the one about the tree that we read, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's walking on the roof of his palace. He's just walking, kind of looking over his palace, over his kingdom. And as he's walking, he stops and says, hmm, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence? Mm, I did a good job. By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Ooh, there's that pride again. Now the thing is, this picture is so familiar for so many of us. Our sinful nature, we're tempted to take credit for things that really only God deserves the credit for. And, you know, we get into this habit of trying to make ourselves look good 
to those around us. And it can be very tempting to use our victories or our successes as a chance to puff ourselves up. You know, that life that you impacted, that project you did really well at, that audience you wowed, that event you put on, that talent that you showcased. It's so easy to hear the compliments and pat yourself on the back and think, you're right, I did do a good job. And you can start to think that you deserve the credit. And as humans, we can be dangerously at risk of thinking that we have more power or wisdom than we really do. But the very breath that we're breathing today is only because of God. And Romans 11.36 so powerfully says about God, it says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So after Nebuchadnezzar so proudly takes credit for building Babylon, the dream was immediately fulfilled, and he was deposed from his royal throne, and he was stripped of his glory. And as the dream prophesied, he was driven away from people. He was given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys, ate the grass with the ox, and his body was drenched with, with the dew of heaven. And that was the case until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and he sets over them anyone that he wishes. He said by the end of the chapter, he had a realization. He finally realized that he didn't deserve the glory. And this is what he says at the end of the chapter. He said, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. After realizing that wrestling with God for credit and honor was a losing battle, the king was finally humbled. Now the crazy thing is, after all of that, we read later on throughout Daniel that the kings that come after him deal with this exact same issue. I mean, they would have been witness to the struggle that he had and all the consequences that he went through, and they still deal with this pride once they become king. And the thing is with pride, it's something that we each have to battle on our own. And unfortunately, a lot of the kings that came after King Nebuchadnezzar did not win that battle. But what I find most interesting about this story is that it gives us a greater understanding of the character of God. The dream and the interpretation that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, they were his gracious warnings. He wasn't looking to only bring destruction down on Nebuchadnezzar. This warning was an expression of his grace. God was giving him one more opportunity to listen, another opportunity to examine, confess, repent, and as the king eventually surrendered his glory to the glory of God, his reign was returned to him even greater than before. You see, pride, it's all about positioning. Positioning ourselves to be richer than the richest, smarter than the smartest, you know, better looking than the best looking. We are never satisfied with where we're at, always wanting more, needing more to feel secure. And we can even take pride in our Christianity. We take such effort to make sure that good comments point back to us about how great we look and how well we do. But humility, on the other hand, it recognizes our frailty and our inadequacies as well as our need for God. See, this is the opposite of what culture is telling us. Culture is telling us that to become great, we must exalt ourselves. We must fight our way to the top. We must rely on our own resources because no one will help us get there. But God asks us to live counter to our culture. Now, for a moment, let's look at another king in the Bible, King Saul. King Saul was the first king to the Israelites. In physical form, he was extraordinary. Ladies, you'd probably call him a stud today. He was tall, easy to look at. 
And he was chosen by God to deliver the Israelites from the hand of their enemies. But early on, Saul showed signs of disregard and disobedience to God. Eventually, the prophet Samuel comes and says, Saul, you're not going to be king anymore. God's going to look for someone who's after his own heart, someone who will, you know, listen to God's commands instead of trying to take matters into his own hands. And Saul, Saul thought he knew better, and he allowed his pride to lead to his disobedience. When pride rules over us, when it controls us, it cuts us off from spiritual growth and maturity. We're not able to hear God anymore. And just like Saul, our hearts are hardened and we lean on our own understanding instead of the word of God. Now, as we look at this battle between pride and humility, there are three main points that I'd like to focus on tonight. First, a life characterized by humility will build your relationship with each other. It will build your relationship with spiritual leaders and it will build your relationship with God. Now, before I look at how it will build your relationship with other Christians, let's just take a moment and set the scene of what relationships in the church can look like and why these really matter. Now, I'd like to think that the majority of you here are in agreement with me in desiring to see our church grow and flourish. I hope, yes, okay. Well, the Bible says that pride leads to destruction. Well, obviously, if we're trying to build something, destruction is kind of the opposite of what we want, right? Right. So when it comes to building healthy relationships and building a healthy church community, humility is not only beneficial, it is absolutely necessary. We have to be careful that pride doesn't creep in and slip into our heart. And we see a powerful warning of this in the story of Cain and Abel. We see in this story that Cain and Abel, they go on this journey, to bring their sacrifice to God. And afterwards, they return home and bring their sacrifice. Once they go back to their field, that is when Cain kills his brother. Right after he had just brought his sacrifice to God. Come on, Cain. You just went to church. You should not be killing your brother. Now, think about how churchgoers can be at risk of the same. We'll come to church together, we'll bring our sacrifice together, but when we leave the place of sacrifice, we go back home to our field, and our true condition of our heart is revealed. And we kill our brother and sister, maybe not physically, but with our words and our attitudes. And in the story of Cain and Abel, as a result of what Cain did to his brother, the Lord comes to him and says, the ground will not yield a harvest like it should. How he treated his brother forfeited his authority and dominion over the land. And the same principle is true for the church. The way we treat our brother and sister will impact the harvest in the land. Acts 2.42 in the Common English Version, this is speaking about the early church. It says, they spent their time learning from the apostles and they were like family to each other. They broke bread and prayed together. Oftentimes when people use the word fellowship nowadays, they're just referring to socializing, food, fun, that type of thing. But real biblical fellowship is so much more than just showing up at church and chatting for a few minutes. It's experiencing life together. But this real biblical fellowship can only happen when we're practicing humility. When we're authentic, willing to share our hurts, 
confess our failures, disclose our doubts, admit our fears, acknowledge our weaknesses, ask for help and prayer. Instead of living in humility, we can often wear a facade and pretend to be something or someone we're not. We'll pretend to be okay when we're not really okay. But that's not living in God's best for his church. See, the church or the family of God, it's not just this nice option for Christians. Well, if I need you, you're there. No, this is an integral part of what God wanted for his people. Now, imagine someone coming up to you and saying, man, I love you, but I hate your wife. Or, man, I love you, but your body, ugh, I don't like that. I know it sounds crazy, but that's essentially what we're doing to Jesus when we complain about the church because we are his body and his bride. John 13 says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you also must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. People will watch how you interact with each other. And when they see genuine love, they will know that you are the disciples of Christ. Our relationship with each other is a witness to the world around us. And if we can't learn to have healthy, godly relationships with each other, then the church growth that we long for, that just a few minutes ago, most of you agreed you'd like to see, that's not going to happen. We could have an influx of people for a time, but they won't survive in an unhealthy environment. In the case of Cain and Abel, the harvest was impacted by the jealousy and actions that took place after the church service, after the time of sacrifice. And as Christians, we're trying to be more like Christ every single day. And one very significant part of who Jesus is, is someone who humbly serves. If anyone deserved rock star treatment, it was Jesus. If anyone deserved to be treated like a celebrity, waited on hand and foot, it was Jesus. Jesus could have demanded to live like royalty during his time here on earth, but he didn't. Instead, he came to show us what true greatness looks like, what true greatness does. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of humility and humble service. His disciples, they witnessed amazing things, more miracles than they could even count. They saw people healed of every sickness, people raised from the dead. They saw the forces of nature obey him. Demons tremble at his name. They saw him teach with authority, and they saw the power of God at work among them. And they always saw him humble himself and serve. Philippians 2, 7 says, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. The NLT version says, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Now, don't feel bad. Like most Christians, the disciples also struggled with this concept of humility. There was one day, Jesus and his disciples, they were walking, taking a journey on their way to Capernaum. And as they're walking, Jesus decides he's going to tell his disciples about the fact, you know, some more details about his death than he's ever shared with them before. And so in that moment, you would think, oh, the disciples, they're going to be grieving with Jesus, hugging him, you know. They're hearing about his death. They're going to be thinking, oh, Jesus, we're so shocked and sad about what's happening. You would think that that might be their response, right? Well, actually, no. The opposite's true. Jesus tells them, 
these details about his death, and their response is they start arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Do you think you're, no, I'm the greatest. No, you? Jesus had just told them that he was going to die and all these things are going to happen, and they have the nerve to start arguing about which one of them is better than the other? Well, it seems inappropriate. <laughs> it seems insensitive, but really, it's tragically normal for us as humans. We are always at risk of allowing pride to come into our heart, even at the worst possible times. But if we really, truly want to be disciples of Jesus, we want to follow after his ways, then humility is the defining part of that. The Bible says that when he came to earth, he humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. Think about that. How important is your reputation to you? Jesus made himself of no reputation. I sometimes wonder if we really realize how radically different from the world God is calling us to be. You see, when we become a Christian, he doesn't just want to save us from our sins. He wants to save us from the pointless and shallow attitudes and lifestyles of this world. As Christians, we're meant to think counter to our culture. Remember that the Bible makes it clear that God resists the proud. That's radically different from what the world's saying. The world's saying, stand up for your rights. Display your degrees. Show them how great you are. Jesus says, I want you to deny yourself. I want you to think of others more highly than yourself. The world looks for status, but Jesus looks for servants. The greatest leader, the all-knowing, all-powerful God of heaven and earth, led by service. And when he was finished here on earth, he said, now you go and do the same. Think of all the times in the Gospels when Jesus could have made a speech about, don't you know who I am? When others didn't understand him, when they didn't recognize him, when they mistreated him. But he never boasted or bragged about the fact that he was God. Because his primary focus was to be there to love and serve others. Now, living a life of humility won't only build your relationship with each other, but it will also build your relationship with spiritual leaders. Put your seatbelts on, people. I know people don't like hearing about this, but it's the truth, and I'm going to preach it. God has put spiritual leaders in your life, and humility will direct you to trust that God's spiritual order is good and it is right. The type of trust doesn't just look at your spiritual leaders as fixtures in a position that collects dust. No, it looks to them as one who actively leads and directs your life through the hand of God. See, our achievement-driven culture can pollute our minds into making judgments about leaders based on the world's standards. But humility will cause you to view your leadership through a kingdom perspective, respecting them, submitting to them, because you trust that God knows what he's doing when he has created this order. If he has chosen an individual to lead, then you won't only accept it, but you'll embrace it and allow them to lead you. Hebrews 13 and 17 says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. You see, God has placed spiritual leadership in your life for a reason. He has anointed them, purposed them to watch for your soul, and yes, they're imperfect humans, 
But God has placed a special covering and divine wisdom for them to fulfill this call. Humility will allow you to realize that you don't always know best. And God's order is right. If he instructed us to submit, then, and that might include submitting some decisions that you feel are yours and yours alone to make, then let go of the control. If God said it, it is good. So you don't need to know the why, the when, the how, the who, the what. You just need to trust God that his order is good. When we're controlled by pride, we're not teachable. We're inflexible. We're resistant to change because we want to feel in control of everything. And we aren't able to grow when, we aren't a- when we're not open to the changes that God wants to make in us. When we're not open to being taught by others, we miss out on direction that God has for us. Now I'm going to wrap this up by lastly talking about the way in which a life characterized by humility will build your relationship with God. You see, a life of humility is more than just not always bragging on yourself or worrying about how you look to others. It's also getting past the idea that you aren't good enough and that you don't have the ability or qualifications to be used by God. See, it's very common for people who want to be used by God to make excuses like, oh, Lord, you know I'm afraid to talk in front of people, or I don't have the personality to do something like that, or, oh, everyone will laugh at me, no one will take me seriously, or people will reject me. But humility, it will help you to realize that these excuses, they don't hold any weight because it was never about you in the first place. It has always been and will always be about God. And God can overcome all of your weaknesses and setbacks. Now, has anyone ever heard the joke about how humble Moses was in Numbers 12.3? says, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. It's funny because Moses is the author of Numbers, and he's talking about how humble he is. I know, I know, it was inspired by God, but just go with me for the joke, okay? It's funny. Well, Moses was pretty humble, but he struggled with pride too, just in a little different way than we might think. When Moses told God that he wasn't good enough for the job because Pharaoh would never listen to him, God's response was to give Moses the proper perspective. God very clearly stated, It's not about you, Moses. It's about me. You're not the one going to convince Pharaoh anyway. I am. All you need to do is allow me to use you. We have to remember that in our weakness, God is made strong. Often, we think we're being humble by saying things like, oh, I could never do that. He could never use me. But humility is really an understanding that even if I'm not capable in and of myself, that's no problem because God most definitely is. We shouldn't be so proud to think that we can do anything of real value without his help anyway. Our job is just allow God to be God and focus on being his servants, willing vessels. If we allow him to be the true Lord of our life, he will provide us with the proper perspective to do his will. It doesn't matter to God how few and pitiful our resources are when we set out to do his will. He can supernaturally take what we know right now what we possess right now, and use it for his glory. Now in Exodus, we see this conversation between Moses and the Lord. And the version I have here is a little bit different than it's on the screen, but you'll get the gist of it. 
So Moses pleaded. He said, oh, Lord, I'm just not a good speaker. I never have been, and I'm not now, and even after you've spoken to me, for I have a speech impediment. Who makes mouths? Jehovah asked him. Isn't it I, the Lord? Who makes a man so that he can speak or not speak, see or not see, hear or not hear? Now go ahead and do as I tell you, for I will help you to speak well, and I will tell you what to say. But Moses said, Lord, please send somebody else. And then the Lord gets angry. He says, all right, your brother Aaron is a good speaker, and he is coming here to look for you and will be happy when he finds you. So I will tell you what to tell him, and I will help both of you to speak well, and I will tell you what to do. So the last excuse for Moses is that he's not good enough at speaking in front of people so that he can't be used. And at that point, God gets angry. Moses was still so caught up in thinking about himself that he refused to understand that the God who had just turned his rod into a snake and back into a rod, the God who had just infected his hand with leprosy and healed it, was able to help him speak. God asked Moses, don't you understand? I'm the one who invented mouths. Can you imagine how frustrating that must be for God? Like, what do you mean help you speak? I invented your mouth in the first place. Of course I can help you speak. But I'm sure most of us here are guilty of it too. If you have a humble heart, though, you can quite honestly do anything for God. See, Moses didn't have it all figured out. But one thing that he did get right was that he didn't want to go anywhere without God. He knew he couldn't do it without God, so he didn't even try. He knew he couldn't handle it on his own. And that type of humility will cause you to stick close to God, and that's the best place to be. A life of humility will build a relationship with God that will endure, because you'll realize that you don't want to attempt this life without him. Music, I'll have you come back. I'll invite you all to stand. I'm going to close with one last story. Uh, and this is a story of my journey to being used by God. And it started at a pretty young age. I started taking some small steps for God as a kid. I would, when I was a kid, I would help teach the nursery class. And I would write my testimony for my school projects. And I would read it aloud for the class to hear. And those were my small steps. And then as I grew older, God started opening different opportunities for me. And every single time that an opportunity would come, I always thought it was too big for me. Like, I wasn't capable, literally without fail, every time. Whether I was eight years old, 16, 26, it didn't matter. Every time I felt like it was too big. And when I had to preach for the first time in another country, I felt like they should have asked anyone other than me, literally anybody. And I remember sitting in the hotel room reading over my notes before the service. And I just kept reading them over and over and over because I was so scared that I was going to forget how to read or something. And that was my big fear. I was so terrified. And I remember sitting there and thinking, God, why me? <laughs> of all the possibilities, why did you ask me? So a couple of hours later, the service has ended. It's the altar call. And in case you were wondering, it was a pretty mediocre sermon. I can't say that I had some supernatural anointing and I lit the house on fire. It was not like that. It was very mediocre. And we were in, at a youth service in France. And as we were with the longs, and as Timo would say, I literally just read the entire sermon. He came up to me and said, you did a good job reading. I said, thank you. Uh, and I spoke way too fast for the interpreter to translate it into French. So 
all in all, not my best work. Well, since my sermon was mediocre at best, I knew that what was happening in that altar call had absolutely nothing to do with me. And the amazing thing is, is that during the altar call of that service, I had an experience with God like I've never had before. I knew that my speaking had nothing to do with it, and it would completely depend on God. That day, I had such a powerful experience. As I looked up toward the ceiling, it was as if the heavens were open and rain was pouring down on all the people who were coming up to the altar, every person that was seeking after God. And the rain, it was glistening like diamonds as it hit the head of all those who were in the altar seeking God. And in that moment is when it clicked for me. That, that's not me. That had nothing to do with me. And that's when God started working in me, that him using me did not depend on my skill or ability. You see, when God called me to be the youth pastor here, I was terrified. I was living in China at the time, and honestly, doing missions in China was way less scary, if I'm being frank. I was single at the time, and to me, my singleness felt like a weakness. I didn't have the skills that I thought I needed to have, and I knew that I couldn't compete with the previous youth pastors that had been here. But God made it very clear to me that he didn't need me to be like anybody else. He just needed me to be available. So once I humbled myself and realized that it had nothing to do with me, and it had everything to do with what God was wanting to do, that's when I stopped making excuses. Maybe I wasn't good enough or wasn't the perfect match on paper, but that wasn't really relevant because God was more than enough. Today, God is calling his people to a life of humility. God is calling his people to root out any pride that is destroying relationships with each other, with your spiritual leaders, or that is getting in the way of your willingness to be used by him. Thank you for joining us today. If you want more information, connect with us on our website at missionpoint.ca. God bless you.